Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. You know, I don't know why I choose these passages to preach on. Um, actually, I, I do. Um, I chose this passage. Well, more actually, this passage chose me or chose us. So we're walking through the gospel according to Mark, and this is what comes next. And I really felt as though we, we need to talk about this. We, we need to address the things that Jesus is addressing, even as uncomfortable or uh, maybe as grossed out as it might make you I feel there's a lot of talk of uh, maggots and such in this, um, in this text. So uh, here we go. Also, the sermon title today is Temptations. And um, so I thought that, that's great. Um, after I'm done tempting you this morning, uh, in this morning's sermon, then we'll go on our merry way. That's a joke. I'm hopefully, I'm going to tempt you. Um, you almost certainly have heard this saying. And um, you likely have said this before, um, but if you haven't said this, you have thought it or at least meant it. Do as I say, not as I do. Right? Do as I say, not as I do. Let's pray. Jesus, these are certainly tough words difficult for us to make sense of and difficult for us to swallow. And yet you spoke these words and we trust that they're words of life because you are the Lord of life. And so as we consider your words communicated to us through your word, the Bible, uh, would you mold us, shape us, conform us to become more and more like you? For we believe this is what you are up to, and this is the very reason for which you have created us, to become more like you, which is another way to say to become more truly human. So Jesus, we're listening. Speak to us. We pray in your name. Amen. So uh, last week, we looked at Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, and the big idea there uh, of Jesus' teaching that he was trying to impart to us was um, that greatness is found in elevating other people, right? We might think uh, at first glance that greatness is sort of, you know, requires that you elevate yourself, but we found that Jesus' teaching is a bit uh, backwards or upside down or countercultural anyway, and he says, no, greatness is actually found in elevating other people. Another way to say that is that uh, leadership and servanthood are synonyms. Leadership and servanthood are synonyms. Uh, and when it comes to leading and the needs of others, the big idea that I think Jesus is trying to communicate here in these verses, verses 42 to 50, is that you lead by example. You lead by example. You lead others closer to Jesus 
by setting an example of drawing near to Jesus yourself. In other words, no matter how much you repeat the phrase, do as I say, not as I do, people you lead will do as you do, not as you say. Did you catch that? People will do what you do, not what you say. Jesus also talks about salt in this passage, and salt is a theme that Jesus uses in a number of places in the scriptures, and uh, he uses it here to illustrate, I think, what he means by servant leadership. I'm going to call it salty servanthood. Salty servanthood. And the call of the text in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50, is the call to be salty servants. Jesus is calling us to be salty servants. Now, salt in the ancient world did a number of things. Chief among those things was preservation. Right? Salt is the ancient form of refrigeration. Salt keeps stuff from going putrid, from spoiling, from rotting. And so when Jesus says in verse 50, he says, you must have the qualities of salt among yourselves. What he means is that you are to be a preserving agent in the world, which is in the process of rotting. The world is in the process of becoming more and more putrid, but I have put you in the world, says Jesus, so that you will be a preserving agent, so that you will prevent the world from going to hell in a handbasket. Excuse the phrase. The world on its own is in a state of decay. If you are a physicist, you would call this entropy. But when followers of Jesus are shaken out of the salt shaker, that's a great book, by the way, I'd recommend to you, Out of the Salt Shaker, when we are shaken out of the salt shaker into the world, then Jesus uses us as preservatives, as, well, preservatives has a kind of a negative connotation, doesn't it? As preserving agents in the world. So in addition to preserving things, salt also adds flavor, right? Who doesn't like to add a little pink Himalayan salt to their dish? Actually, I think more technically, salt doesn't add flavor. Salt draws out and emphasizes the flavors that are already there. So when Jesus says in verse 50, you must have the qualities of salt among yourselves, he means for you to draw out the best in others. So to be salty in this sense, in the sense of drawing out the best in others, is to help your neighbors, those people in that hashtag that Jericho was just talking about, right? your neighbors across the street and behind you and diagonal. How can you help your neighbors discover the fact that they were actually created in the image of God? Genesis 1 verse 26 says that you and I, all humankind, all human beings were created in the image of God to be like Him in terms of our capacity to love, in terms of our capacity to forgive, in terms of our capacity to serve, in terms of our capacity to show grace and favor, and our capacity to enjoy relationships. 
You and I were created in God's image. So were your neighbors. And to draw out the best in them is to help them see that you bear God's image. You're kind of like God, not in terms of knowing everything or being all-powerful, but you're kind of like God in terms of the capacity you have to love, the capacity you have to live in rich relationship. So to draw out the best flavors in others is to help them see how wonderfully and fearfully they have been created. That's Psalm 139, right? To draw out the best flavors in others is to help them see that, in fact, they were created for one particular relationship. And that particular relationship is a relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ. That this is, to quote somebody else, your best life ever awaiting you in relationship with the one for whom you were created. To quote another pastor, this is the life you have always desired. Like deep down, even though you might not articulate it, the life that you have always desired, because it's the life you were created for, is a life with Jesus. To be salty means to draw out the flavors that are kind of latent, already there. So salt preserves, salt draws out the best or the flavor, by the way, A world filled with Christians ought to be a flavorful world. Think about that. A third characteristic of salty servanthood, Jesus actually names. He says, you must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with one another. Salty servants are peacemakers. They're peace lovers. They're peacekeepers. Salty servants live in peace with each other because they lean into who they have become in Jesus. They have become the holy and beloved people of God. Listen to how Paul describes these people, these holy and beloved people, you. Colossians chapter 3, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. This next part's the best, I think. Make allowance for each other's faults. And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And finally, verse 15 Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Salty servants, let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. And that is what enables us to live together in peace, to be peacemakers. But what is the peace of Christ that can rule in your hearts? How do we get that peace of Christ? It's really simple. You get the peace of Christ by being near to Christ. I know, groundbreaking. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Drawing near to Jesus 
That is what Jesus calls in verse 43 and 45. That's what Jesus calls entering into eternal life. It's what he calls in verse 47, entering into the kingdom of God. To draw near to Jesus is to enter into eternal life, to enter into the fullness of life, to enter into the kingdom or the reign of God. And Jesus tells us that to draw near to him, to enter into eternal life, in order to do that, he uses some really extreme language. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It sounds like hyperbole to us. But in all reality, for first century Christians living in the Roman Empire, those extreme examples were not all that uncommon. We know this because a very reliable first century historian by the name of Josephus, he wrote about slaves who were caught trying to escape and had their foot cut off as a result. He wrote about thieves having their hand cut off. He wrote about eyes plucked out for voyeurism. This was a real thing that happened. Now, clearly, well, I think at least, clearly Jesus doesn't intend for us to gouge out our eyes. Please do not gouge out your eye today. But what he's saying also is very clear. You just may need to take extreme measures to cut out temptation from your life. Is there something in your life that tempts you into sin? Cut it off. Cut it out. Get rid of it. These kinds of extreme measures are worth it when you consider the results. Romans 6, 30, 23 says it this way, the wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, what you earn through sin is death. But what you are given through Jesus is life. And I think what Jesus is saying here is what good is death if you've got both your feet and both your hands and both your eyes? You're still dead. Verse 43, it's better to enter into eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. The word that Jesus used to describe hell here is, um, your Bibles probably have a little asterisk right there, because the word that Jesus uses there is the word Gehenna. Gehenna is not a metaphor. Gehenna is a real place. Gehenna is located in the valley of Hinnom, just south of Jerusalem. And Gehenna is the place where infants used to be sacrificed to the pagan god Molech. You can read about it in Jeremiah. This valley called Gehenna was later turned into a kind of garbage dump. It's where the city of Jerusalem put all of its refuge. refuse. It's also where the city of Jerusalem would put all of the leftover animal parts, literally all of the guts of the animals that they would light on fire. Gehenna was therefore overrun with maggots 
infesting all of these animal carcasses, and also an unquenchable smoldering flame that just never went out. It was the ancient version of the waste incineration plant. And in a couple centuries before Jesus came along, Gehenna began to be used as a kind of description of hell. It is the worst thing you could imagine. Where flesh literally rots and where the fire never goes out. And Jesus just adopted the language of the day to describe hell. It's like Gehenna. It's like the garbage dump where the fire never goes out. Nothing but death. It's awful, no matter how many feet or hands or eyes you have. (laughs) So is there anything in your life that tempts you into sin? Why would you not get rid of that? I think as compelling as this imagery of Gehenna is, I think the corollary is actually much more compelling It's better to enter into eternal life, Jesus says. Eternal life is so good that it's better to enter into that kind of life with one hand, one foot, and one eye because it's still the fullness of life. When Jesus talks about entering into eternal life, I don't think he's talking about what happens to us when we die. I mean, he is talking about that, but not only that. I saw a guy recently who had a t-shirt on the other day, and it said, are you absolutely certain of where you're going when you die? I really wanted to go up to him and just say, yeah. (laughs) But I don't think the t-shirt was intended for me. If you are in Christ through faith, by grace, then you can be absolutely certain where you are going after you die. What I'm not certain about is whether or not Jesus would have wore that t-shirt. Is the whole point of our existence in this life, is the whole point, is our whole experience here only aimed at what happens after Think about that. Is your entire existence merely a preamble? Is it merely a preface that just like the book you just read, you could skip and you wouldn't really miss anything? Is our life here just a preface? Does it add nothing to the real story that unfolds in the chapters that follow? I mean, is our life in this world really that lame? I think Jesus would say, absolutely not. In fact, Jesus did say in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And that abundant life is the life you were created for. It's a life that extends infinitely beyond the grave for sure. But you don't have to wait until you're six feet under to begin enjoying it to begin entering into that life that you were designed for. You can draw near to Jesus today. You don't have to wait. Is there something in your life that prevents you from drawing near to Jesus? Cut it off. 
Because it would be far better to draw near to Jesus with only one eye than it would be to go to a place like Gehenna with both eyes. Do you see what Jesus is inviting you into? Some of you think, some of you think that you cannot survive without that eye or that hand or that foot. It's tempting you into sin, but you think that you actually cannot survive. Or you think that you will be just fine. You can handle it. You think that you couldn't survive without your smartphone or that you'd be miserably stressed if you didn't have a few drinks after work every day in order to unwind. But the reality is your porn addiction is killing you. Your alcoholism is stealing your life away and is drawing you farther and farther from Jesus. Is there something in your life that prevents you from drawing near to Jesus? Cut it out. Just cut it off. I'm sure that with God's help and the community of believers around you, we can figure out how you can get through life without that thing that you cut off. What extreme measures might you need to take in order to draw near to Jesus? It turns out that by cutting off whatever tempts you into sin, not only does that draw you near to Jesus, but as a salty servant, it also will help others draw near to Jesus. Because people don't do what you say, they do what you do. And if you're drawing near to Jesus, you're going to draw others near to Jesus too. Listen to the good news in Colossians 2, verses 11 to 12. Colossians 2. Do you guys know how to find this? Go eat popcorn. You know that? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorns. Now you know it. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12. Listen to the good news of Jesus Christ. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, advertisement for a little baptism course afterwards, you were baptized, when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. If you have trusted in the mighty power of God through Jesus Christ, your sinful nature has been cut off. It has been cut away. And if you've been baptized, then you've been buried with Jesus in his death, putting to death your sin so that you could raise to new life with Jesus Christ in this resurrection life, which by the way, you don't have to wait until you're six feet under to begin living and enjoying. You've been raised with him. And how was it then that your sinful nature was cut off? How did he do it? How is it that we can choose to cut off those things in our lives that actually tempt us into sin? It's because Jesus himself was cut off. Golgotha is the place where Jesus was crucified. We're not 100% sure exactly where that is, but we do know that it was just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And it was in a different place from that smoldering garbage dump known as Gehenna. But nevertheless, it was outside the city walls of Jerusalem because that was the fate of those who were crucified. They were cut off, cast out, sent 
away from society in this humiliating form of capital punishment. You would be crucified outside the city walls. But not only was Jesus cut off from Jerusalem, not only was he cut off from the people, cut off from society, but much more significantly than that, Jesus was cut off from relationship with his father. He was cut off from God. That's the definition of hell. He descended to hell. In other words, he was cut off from his relationship with God the Father. As Jesus breathed his very last on the cross when he was crucified, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he cry that out? Because he was cut off from relationship with God. Why was he cut off from relationship with God? Because he took upon himself the weight of the sin of the world, all of your sin. He took it all. And when he took it all, he could not be in the presence of a living and holy God. And so he was cut off and he descended into hell where he take, took all your sin and buried it all in that terrible garbage dump where it was lit on fire or whatever kind of miserable analogy you want to come up with about how Jesus destroyed your sin in hell. Jesus was cut off and that's how he cut your sin off. That's the very definition of hell, to be cut off from the living God. Jesus took extreme measures to draw near to you and to cut off your sinful nature. What extreme measures might you need to take to draw near to Jesus and to help others draw near to Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you not in shame, but in humility. We come before you not in shame because we know that you love us beyond measure and have since before the foundation of the world, that you created us in your image, that we are wonderfully and fearfully made. But we come to you in humility because we know that we don't measure up. We know that we can't do it. We know that we don't have what it takes to be holy, to be perfect. And so we humbly ask Jesus that again and again you would give us the courage to cut off those things that tempt us into sin. We thank you that ultimately you have cut down the power of sin in our lives so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are children of God. And would you again and again, today and every day, give us the strength to draw near to you, to enter into the fullness of eternal life, not just once we die, but today. So give us the courage by your spirit to say yes to you, which very likely means saying no to some stuff that draws us away from you. Help us to say no that we might say yes to you. For you have said yes to us. We pray this in the good name, the powerful name, the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. 
Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at C-